Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. We talk a lot in agriculture about the need for unskilled labor and how hard that is to get and nobody wants to work in the fields. I think that there's a real issue with skilled labor and like that person that understands how the spray applicator works, the person that can run the processing either on your farm or when you graduate to off your farm, whether it's lack of university training or apprenticeships or that there's been massive consolidation. And so there's one big farm instead of 10 little ones. And where did all those people go? They left to find off farm jobs. I love this topic that you're bringing up. While I can't offer an answer in this first comment, I'm going to say that it's a confirming question that you're asking, and it weaves right into how I've tried to define my career. And in essence, I'm hearing you say your question, addressing a question that I ask, and that is, why can't growers stay small and be successful? Based on what you just brought up, and if I'm going to stay small and profitable and successful, I might not be able to spend the $20,000 If I decide that I'm going to grow, I can get the equipment, then we're in the catch-22 that you're talking about. Now I need someone that that can operate it because the business now has grown beyond me being the controller and the jack-of-all-trades. So I think it's wonderful. It's like the essence of ag ag economics that, that you're bringing to the table today. Part of me is saying, all right, I believe or I'd like to see small farmers have the opportunity to stay small. And having been brought up in this type of environment where my father drummed into me that if you can do it yourself, learn how to do it yourself, you'll be better off, it'll be done better than anyone else. And whether all of those things are true or not is a topic for another day. But there are many people that have this same DNA DNA that I was uh, raised with and they would just soon figure out how to do it themselves and orient themselves vertically. So it's not an answer, but it's it's kind of a reinforcement of how important the question you're raising is. Is this a place that automation makes sense, right? If your goal is to do as much of it as you as you can, then purchasing some of the Bartlett instrument technology and sensors frees up some of your time to do other work by having the dosadron injector sprayer again it takes you a lot less time as you were saying to apply those chemistries than it does to mix them in a bucket and so do some of these automation and technology allow farmers to get more out of their working hours without getting bigger. Bingo. Let me use drip irrigation in a greenhouse as a perfect example of what you're um, asking. Um, And I'm going to contradict myself from a minute ago, Michelle, and and say, oh, yes, a a moment ago, I said, I want to do everything myself. Uh, Now, Peter, you're telling me that the minute you, uh, whatever reason, whoever convinced you 
to install drip lines for hanging baskets. For whatever the reason was, the minute that I turned them on for the first time, my re response was, what? oh, I waited too long. Why didn't I do this years ago? As that cascades down, we first installed drip lines for hanging baskets or whatever crop. We chose not to spend money on the time clock to control them. And we said, oh, I'm in the greenhouse all day long. I can turn the valve on and off by myself. And by the way, it's cutting down my watering time by 90% because the drip lines go to 1,000 baskets or 100 baskets. So once we chose to take the plunge and spend the money on, and this gets to the small grower thing, Michelle, that, that we don't have a lot of money. We don't have those $20,000. Sometimes we don't have $200 for a time clock. But once we do decide that it's a priority and, and I spent the $200 on a time clock, it was the same response. Why didn't I do this from the beginning? So then we start trusting more our teachers, right? Our extension agents and our economists like yourself or production professors that I once was. And we get a little more of that uh, relationship going so that if we decide as teachers to advise them to buy something, or if you as an economist are starting to advise them to buy the tomato juicing machine, then we have a little more trust built up and, and they'll take that plunge. Again, I'm not answering any questions for you. I'm just offering some experiences that kind of enhance the question that you're asking and the principles that you're proposing. Did the time clock and the irrigation give you back time? And so that was their inherent value? Or did they also improve the operation? So you used less water or didn't miss a watering or something like that. So you got a higher yield or a better product. All right. This, um, it's all of the above, Michelle. We installed the drip systems so that we could save time and not have to have, carry a hose from basket to basket. But the nice benefit was we proved quality. And that's, that's a difficult thing for a seasoned grower to admit, Michelle, that the drip tubes could do a better job than I could with the hose. And, and it was mainly because of the efficiency and the uniformity. So yes, yes, and yes, we cut down on time, which allows me to do you know that opportunity cost that economists uh, teach us and it improved quality. And also the cost of it was, uh, in, in hindsight, the cost was negligible. It wasn't a $20,000 piece of equipment. It was just a few hundred dollars. So we learned as growers along the way that learning where to spend the money for the big, biggest bang for the buck, the payback, so to speak, became part of our lexicon. So then what did you do with your extra time? <laughs> I built another greenhouse. We put in some more drip lines and grew more hanging baskets and grew the business. So again, there, listeners might hear a slight contradiction in my messaging over, over episodes and years. And there's a part of me that dearly wants to be able to stay small and successful. But I also am a capitalist and a free market practitioner. So growing a business is exciting. And as the family business grew and we built greenhouses and, and at some point we then outgrew our family nucleus and needed part-time. We never had to go to full-time employees. I having two brothers and parents, so five of us ran the 50,000 square foot greenhouse operation, but we then required part-time labor. And that now segues right into your initial comment, and that is how do we find skilled labor 
Before I yield the floor, I'll say to you that as a, an educator and having experienced this, a thread, a conversation throughout the commercial greenhouse industry that focuses on why so many growers will put entry-level employees into a greenhouse, put a hose, an irrigation hose in their hand and ask them to perform what many of us consider to be the most important task in the greenhouse, and that is properly watering a crop. When you hand the hose over, do you know that it's the most important job or it just seems like the one that's easiest to delegate? It's both, Michelle. If we had 10 growers in the room with us, I'm sure we'd have a split response where some of them would say, I don't care what it took. I no longer had the time to do this. I needed someone else to do it. And then it's also complicated, Michelle, by our undergraduate and our horticultural training system where to get a bachelor's degree, a four-year university setting, most of that education is classroom and textbook. And we had growers for many years complain to us that it didn't help me to get to pay for a bachelor's employee. I still had to train him or her how to water. And then we would say back to them as educators, yes, we understand that. They're tight on time. We only have them for those four years. And there's only a few courses that we you know, get them for that are horticulture. Many others are general university requirements. So we, we say to them, but we believe that we've taught them how plants grow. So they should either be able to learn how to water faster than off the street employee, or they're going to quickly rise up through the ranks and help you in other ways, higher ways. You know, you said that they didn't know how to water. I heard the same thing on the animal side. And I was looking at how do we get new farmers onto land? And if you're a land owner, you want to rent to someone with a lot of experience. The research shows that even if you say you want to rent to new people, you end up renting to people that you know or with the most experience. And so I suggested, what if there was a certificate that you got that said that you had done this and you learned how to do it? And I was basically told that people that graduate from college don't know the difference between a horse and a cow. And so how could they run the farm? And so it's sort of the same thing that you learn theoretical and you learn big picture. Are you really learning what you need to work on the farm? And how does that reconcile? And then back to your question, do people rise through the ranks or do they say it's too hard and move on to an air-conditioned job. I love this question and topic. I'm going to be philosophical for 60 seconds and then get right back down to reality. As a former university professor, I am of the philosophy that the four years of undergraduate education is not so much about a student learning what all the answers are. It's more of us training their brain how to learn and you also may or may not agree with what I'm saying. So what we want to say to the grower, the hirer, is, okay, you may need to train Sue or Sam to water, but we've trained their brain how to think about plants. So he or she should learn how to master watering more quickly for you. And you may find at some point in the near future that he or she is overqualified now, that, that's also almost an oxymoron. 
watering is the most important job in the greenhouse. And now I'm saying someone's overqualified to do it. You know, we need to be able to reconcile these conflicting comments that that you and I are, are making. I find, Michelle, that students in horticulture, I find fewer of them in the category that you're describing where they might be lazy or not want to work hard or work with their hands. Now, to answer part of your question, do these students rise through the ranks? Some of the most qualified and fastest learners are going to outgrow the company they're working with and strike out on their own. So that seeds for us the locally grown movement, and it helps us replenish the independent grower. And there are many stories of growers who have their own businesses, but started out working for someone else. And that happens in all industries, right? Today's conversation is any of the answers like all of the above. There's so many different options, but I'll keep returning us to your basic questions today is, and that is the skilled versus unskilled labor. And in a garden center or on a farm, it's up to us as the owners and the trainers to be able to distinguish as quickly as possible whether the unskilled person we just hired has potential or not. And that might that's true for any industry, right? Yes. And then I think to your point that the best will grow quickly and then start their own business, it gets to this question that I've been thinking about scalability of a business versus replicability of a business. If you get to this fully automated system where you are profitable as the owner and you're not needing to hire a lot of people, you're not necessarily continuing to grow. You found this place that works for you, this sweet spot, this right-sized business. If your farm manager or help then move on and start their own business and replicate the same model, we get to this regional food system through multiple small businesses filling the landscape instead of one large one. This is decentralization? This is the concept? Yeah, I do. I think there's an ideal sweet spot where you have enough businesses in place so that you have this resiliency, you have this ability to continue to try new ideas. Every farm is going to be trying new things all the time. And as they are successful, those practices are going to be adopted. So you need multiple businesses to have this innovation. You need multiple businesses in case someone goes offline, whether it's a cyber hack or a pandemic or whatever, so that you can still get food into the system. And so that's where those multiple businesses come in, but you also need there to be a small enough number of businesses that each one can have a big enough market share or reach a scale where they can be profitable. And that I think is hard to achieve and I don't think ever lasts, right? We're always moving back and forth between hobbies or businesses that are not quite that commercial level yet. And then the mega players and that composition is constantly moving. You know, as I heard you describing that, I'm thinking again of the big fish, small fish analogy that that serves us so well over many episodes. And I want to make sure people don't misunderstand my position where I have devoted my career to small growers and would like to see more small operations. I'm not that naive to think 
that it's all small growers. So, so you just hit the nail on the head. It's really this continuum that's flowing and ebbing where during certain periods, small growers will flourish. Maybe the pandemic was one of those, but we can't be naive enough to think as you and Brian from the Boulder farmer's market have said to me over time, when I've asked how much of the percentage of agriculture can we return to the family roots? And I was shocked to hear that it's only 3%. And I was equally shocked to hear both of you say, if we could ever get it to 10%, Peter, that's that's a big win. And I, I left those conversations deflated with my shoulders drooping, saying, is that all we can do? But in hindsight now, thinking through and putting together today's conversation, the points that you're bringing up, let's encourage this ebb and flow. It's like managing an ecosystem, is it not? That we need, I mean, big fish need to eat little fish and little fish benefit from big fish. Small growers get trickle-down technology. We had Dave Bartlett from Bartlett Instruments. That company is building equipment that's affordable to small growers. I, as a small grower, couldn't touch some of the real high-powered, high-level computerized environmental controls. It's nice to see that technology get down to my level. And now the controllers are also including that time clock. So I no, no longer need both an environment control and a time clock. I get everything in one. So there's so many efficiencies. Well, you pointed down how the technology trickles down from the large growers, but I would also argue that the innovation often moves up from the small growers and those new challengers that need to find a way to make it have to either find an efficiency or change the paradigm in some way in order to be successful. And so you've got new players that are challenging the status quo. You've got bigger players that are mastering the technology, investing the technology. And those are places that we see businesses evolve. We also see that when businesses can't evolve or small businesses can't be profitable, that they go out of business, which is also helpful, right? We don't want that drag on the industry either. All good points. It takes our textbook to you know the real world and trying to figure all of it out. I have one more little story to add in on this, the skilled labor and the college educated, Michelle. I've had more than one large grower, different regions of the country, share with with me their philosophy that they'll say, I want the most recent college graduates, the I want the undergraduates getting coming right out of college. I can train them how to water, but I want their ideas based on what they've been taught by their professors, the cutting edge research. And then they tend not to pay them that well. And it's all intentional, Michelle, so that they turn over. A section grower might come into a multi-acre operation and after a couple of years become frustrated because he or she can't rise any higher or make any more money. Some of them, the brightest, are then in that category I described earlier. They'll leave that large operation to start their own. And, and now the owner of the business can then rehire a more recent college graduate with some more recent research teachings. It's all kinds of flows like an engine where moving parts are all contributing to the you know greater cause. And we're seeding some of those independent growers. That was really helpful. 
thing that came to my mind is when you talk to the controlled environment agriculture community, that there was this idea from a lot of the startups that, that automation would run it, right? That you'd have sensors and the water would turn on and off and the plants would just flourish and anybody could do it. At Indoor AgCon a couple of years ago, there was this shift, this understanding that there are people in the system, you need this knowledge in the system. And one of the professors from UT Davis stood up and said, and that's why we have all these courses on agriculture and business and horticulture. It's this, it's an interesting sweet spot of you do need this training. You do need this experience. It is not just a sensor. But yet sensors help people and you get some knowledge out of universities and you get some knowledge out of on-farm experience. And then I think it goes back maybe to my point that now you need a farm manager or owner that can manage all of these different pieces. What technology am I adopting? Who knows how to use it? What do I need from these university students versus what do I need to train people? Do I want to keep them longer? Or do I want to have turnover to get these new ideas? And this is really the managing. And that takes a lot of skill to get to a point where you can manage all of this and profitably and successfully. You know, it's, it's so complicated, Michelle, depending on the mood, it can either seem frustrating and just overwhelming. But if the mood is then on the flip side, more of a bright and looking into the future, it's, it's so exciting. My generation of uh, university researchers is the one, as the UC Davis professor stood up and said, okay, guys, yeah, we understand what you're saying, but we're nowhere near there yet. AI, artificial intelligence, yes, it's coming. You guys are doing a great job in the tech world developing it. But I hate using this word, Michelle, trust us. I, when someone says, trust me, my response has become, well, am I not supposed to trust you on anything else that you're telling me? I almost slipped and said, professors, were, researchers were saying, okay, trust us, we're not ready for it yet, but we do see it's coming. And this, your generation and the generation now that you're teaching it, at the uh, university level, I think each one is going to have more and more AI built into their fabric and their DNA and outlook. But some of the websites that you've turned me on to, Michelle, since about where money is being funneled into the agriculture sector, that was a world that I didn't touch at all before. And now once a week when the Ag Funder list of projects comes out, I like to read down through and pick a few that I'll, I'll read more about. And that high-tech investment side of agriculture is yearning for no human touch, artificial intelligence, story of, you know, when astronauts get to Mars, the food has to already have been grown and ready to harvest. So we're all going there, but it's this continuum where we can't, we have not yet made the, the human factor obsolete, as, as you eloquently said a few minutes ago. Well, I'm not sure that we solved anything, but it was definitely an interesting discussion. Excellent. Great topic. Thank you.